Welcome to Off the Wall, a podcast aimed at helping you answer the questions, what is the point of my wealth, and what steps can I take to make that vision a reality? Your host, David Armstrong, co-founder of Monument Wealth Management, and Jessica Gibbs, director of private wealth design at Monument, will tap into their over 25 years of combined experience in wealth management to help you answer these challenging but important questions. Interested in learning more? Connect with us on Instagram at Monument Wealth and follow along at MonumentWealthManagement.com. Now, here are your hosts, Dave and Jessica. Welcome back to Off the Wall. So some of you who have been listening for a while know that we are a bunch of voracious readers here at Monument. If you haven't checked out our episode on Thinking and Bets, the book by Annie Duke, where we had Dean Catino on as a guest, I highly recommend you go back and listen to that. But if you're also a bookworm like us, I think you're going to love today's episode. We are talking about a book called The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. It is, honestly, Among Us at Monument is an endlessly quotable book. We are always finding a way to reference this book. So to talk about it, we have on the pod today, we obviously have Dave Armstrong, my co-host. Hey, everybody. Good to be back. Yeah. And then we also have back Ro Pugnani from the Monument team. Hey, Ro. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me back. We got so much positive feedback on Ro last time that we had to let him back. (laughs) I think it's better to lower the bar before we start the podcast and to raise expectations. Well, good. I I suspect you'll be a more regular guest, Ro. But no, Jessica, you're right. This book is so highly quotable. I think second to the movie Fletch, I probably quote this book more than anything else in my life. That's saying a lot, by the way. It's such a great book. I don't think it's a book that's very... I don't think it should be unfamiliar to anybody in our industry. It's very popular in our industry. It might be unfamiliar to people who aren't in our industry. Perhaps they've never even heard of it, but it is. It's the psychology of money, and it's just fantastic. I'm excited to talk about it. Morgan Hazel, he published this in 2020, which talk about a year to publish a book about the psychology of money. But basically, the premise for his book is that doing well with money has very little to do with how smart you are, and actually has a lot to do with how well you behave. And it's this behavior that's really hard to teach. Given, again, that this is just such a quotable book, I actually thought it'd be kind of fun if each of us shared one quote from the book that really resonated with us, because... I think that's a good way to, one, get insight into how each of us interpreted this book. And then two, because it, I think it's a good way for us to each share kind of takeaways that we've actually seen from these real life applications of what he's talking about this book and how decisions that you make around your money can actually have a really positive impact on building wealth or can have a negative impact. So Dave, let's start off with you. What was one quote that really jumped out at you from this book? Well, everybody knows that the drum that I beat over and over again has to do with having cash and using cash as a very cost-effective hedge. So I actually have two favorite quotes that have to do with cash. I'm going to blend them together. The quote was, no one wants to hold cash during a bull market. They want to own assets that go up a lot. And then the second quote was, but if that cash prevents you from having to sell your stocks during a bear market, The actual return you earned on that cash is not 1% a year. It could be many multiples of that because preventing one desperate ill-timed stock sale can do more for your lifetime returns than picking dozens of big-time winners. Mic drop. Boom. There are two really, really great quotes. And I think it's just 
so reinforcing on what we say here all the time to our clients, which is if you can be financially unbreakable, if you can have a margin of safety, a margin of error by having cash in your portfolio, that keeps you from having to sell assets during a sell-off, whether it's a short-term sell-off or even a long-term sell-off. You're going to increase the probability of having higher long-term rates of return than if you're forced to liquidate something when they're trading down. Yeah, Dave, I absolutely love that quote, especially the way you you set it up in terms of cash as a hedge. When I put on my portfolio manager hat, and I, what I want to do today is, is take these great quotes, these insightful nuggets from Morgan Housel and turn them into actionable things for our readers. I'm sure Jessica has a lot of thoughts on why cash is so important from a planning perspective. And I can't wait to hear those from a portfolio management perspective. I think another way to rephrase what you said is avoiding one ill-time sale, right? Letting your winners run is so important. Warren Buffett has said the ideal holding period is forever. So if you can have cash to not only weather a downturn, that's the hedge part in a traditional sense. But I think the way Morgan means it in this book is it's a hedge against ourselves. It's a hedge against becoming our own worst enemy. We find, and the data is very clear, and I think Morningstar put out a a longitudinal study a few years ago, the average mutual fund holder, the average investor earned about 2.9%. So let's call it 3%. With the S&P earning closer to 10, that's because they panic. They panic during COVID. They panic during the debt downgrade in 2011, 2008. It's because they didn't have enough cash elsewhere in their portfolio. So yeah, we have to hedge from a portfolio management standpoint, my day job, but we have to hedge against ourselves. And I think that's a really important aspect of what I think he's driving at here. It also gives you so much flexibility too, because let's invert that for a second. Let's just assume that an investor has been diligent in keeping 12 to 18 months worth of cash needs on hand, earning less than 1%, let's just say, okay? Earning nothing. It's just sitting there and that's that's the hedge, that's the insurance policy, that's the margin of error, it's the cushion. And April of 2020 rolls around. And they say, well, you know, my projected need for this cash for the next 12 to 18 months is very low. I don't think, I didn't lose my job. I don't think I need this cash in the next 12 to 18 months, right? I probably don't need at least half of it. I'm not buying a house, I have nothing foreseen coming up, I could actually deploy this cash right now during a 20 or 30, 40% sell-off in the market and actually increase my long-term rate of return by doing what everybody knows that they should be doing, which is buy low, sell high. So you could actually look at it as not only a hedge, but as an opportunity to deploy capital at strategic times. Well said. And then from a planning perspective, and I'm kind of kicking over Jessica here, I think cash helps mitigate sequence of returns risk. So I know we've talked about sequence of returns risk a lot, but if you were planning to retire in 07 and you retired in Q2 of 07, you enjoyed a few more up months and then you saw your net worth, assuming it was all in marketable securities, et cetera, drop by 51% over the course of really just 18 months. Well, if you have cash, you can consume the cash instead of being stressed about the portfolio. And so the discussion changes from timing the market, like is this going to be an up week or a bad week, to making sure you have as much time in the market as possible. Because ultimately, the greatest investor of all time isn't a person, 
It's a concept. And that concept is longevity. It's survivability. It's time. And holding cash as a hedge against ourselves, like we said, is the best way to do that. Jessica, any, any thoughts on sequence of return risks and the role of cash from a planning perspective? I had seen some research one time where it looked at, okay, same portfolio size, same rate of return, same withdrawal risk, same retirement lifespan. But looked at what if that hypothetical retiree had retired in 1973, 1974, and 1975. And basically, if you retired in 1973 and you followed this return, you ran out of money before the end of your life. If you retired in 1974, you retired with similar amount, maybe half of what you had started with, but you didn't run out of money. And if you retired in 1975 and followed these parameters, your portfolio doubled by the end of your life. I mean, to me, that just speaks volumes in the matter of if you're talking about literally three years back to back and determining when you're retiring and what your portfolio could look like at the end of your life, you know, and, and to me, that means what do you pass on to your heirs? And then also, you know, your ability to actually like live in retirement. That was just such a huge impact to me because it just showed the value of basically if you were one of those 1973 retirees and you had had just some cash in hand for a year or two years, that could get you to basically being a point where you're not pulling money from your portfolio until that 1975 scenario. Just such a a, what a dramatic impact that can be on your success or not. I mean, I, I just think for us, we're always talking with our clients about, as planners, we're always talking about what are your cash needs? We do cash flow based planning. Essentially, what that means is, yes, we're, com- we're tied to your goals, but it's like, how are you actually going to fund this? Do you actually have cash on hand or, or the cash flow to fund this? And, and if you don't have it that year, where are you taking that cash from? So we're always talking about cash flow with clients, but just that little simple research exercise, an academic exercise showed me. Holy smokes, that's, I mean, that's, that's put some real fear of God in you as far as sequence of return risk. That's, that's what I took away from that piece of research. It's one of those things where it's really a pretty simple concept, but so hard for people to embrace. If I was a medical doctor and I had a superpower like Wonder Woman's lasso, but instead it made everybody do exactly what I said, if I had that power, my life would be a lot better. But an example would be, I was a medical doctor and I had the lasso of do whatever I say. And I put it around somebody and I say, get eight hours of sleep, eat better, drink less, exercise more. I would probably save a ton of people's lives. But everybody's heard that advice a million times in their life. They just choose not to do it. It's the same thing with this. There are some very simple concepts that can decrease the probability of experiencing either financial ruin or at least financial difficulty sequence of risk being one of them, if you adhere to some basic principles of managing your emotions. And I think the cash component of a portfolio is a huge contributor to somebody's ability to experience financial success in their lives. Because holding cash is counterintuitive. We invest to create wealth. And what's, I think the point here, and this is, I think the takeaway is by holding cash, you can actually create more wealth because you'll stick with your investments. We see people do ludicrous things with money in our business. I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's phenomenal. People are 100% in small cap, non-dividend paying startups or IPOs or, and so forth. And they don't even have the cash reserve to see that investment through. And so it's such a critical component. So I think the counterintuitive point to put a bow on this is if you want to maximize wealth, which most of our listeners do, want to create wealth, want to maximize wealth, actually hold cash. 
we're talking about investing there. I think obviously when I think of investing, particularly if I put my consumer hat on, I think of volatility. The market goes up and down over time. So Dave, I know there was a quote that stuck out to you, I think, related to this. There was. There's a huge section of the book that deals with volatility and uncertainty. I'm cherry picking a few things here, but one of the quotes was, in investing, you must identify the price of success, volatility, and loss amid the long-term backdrop of growth, and be willing to pay it. In another part of the book, he uses the analogy of buying a ticket at Disneyland, and the quote is, Disneyland tickets cost $100 but you get an awesome day with your kids you'll never forget. Last year, more than 18 million people thought that fee was worth paying. Few felt the $100 was a punishment or a fine. The worthwhile trade-off of fees is obvious when it's clear that you are paying one. So if you can generate some emotional clarity on understanding that volatility and loss are a fee you pay, for growth of a portfolio, and you're willing to pay that, it becomes much more palatable to control yourself during periods of volatility. And people just need to be very clear. And there was another quote in the book, and I'm paraphrasing this one a little bit because I don't exactly remember it word for word, but it said something like, there are only a few places for investors to think about room for error. And one of them is volatility. Can you survive your assets declining by 30 or 40%? That's the rough quote. I think everybody needs to ask themselves, like, can I survive my assets declining by 30%? And now in the current market conditions that we have, it's such a valuable time to consider that because we're at all-time highs. And every time I turn on the news, all I hear about is we're having a melt-up. I can't believe the stock market keeps going up. This can't keep going forever. Well, it can't. So investors should be running a little mental fire drill and saying to themselves, what happens if the portfolio goes down 30 If I have a million dollar portfolio and all of a sudden it's worth $700,000, has that changed my life? Well, if it's in your IRA and you're 35 years old, I would argue it doesn't. If you're 65 years old and you start talking about sequence of returns, a little bit more of a problem on your hands. It's an interesting way of always assessing. I call it running your mental fire drill. What would happen if the market went down 30% today? Would you you say, geez, if I had only done XYZ two days ago, I'd be fine. Identify those things are and do them now. I have a lot to say on volatility in markets because a lot of people try to dampen volatility. A lot of people try to avoid it. And candidly, we have some cool strategies that can do that, but it always comes at a cost. Volatility is something that is part of the ride. It's part of the psychology of money is understanding that it's going to go up and down. I mean, even some of the most quotable investors say that volatility is actually an opportunity. The challenge we face as advisors and coaching clients is for some reason, it's innate in us that we are relative return investors on the way up and absolute return investors on the way down. Okay, what does that mean? On the way up, we're comparing ourselves to the S&P. I want to be in line or ahead, but on the way down, we suddenly don't want to ever fall into negative categories. That's impossible. The S&P 500 is an extremely, I'm using strong language, an extremely inefficient asset. It's an extremely inefficient investment. Okay, what does that mean? In a previous life, I worked and was managing a systematic rules-based hedge fund. And a ratio that we use in that space is called the MAR ratio, M-A-R. The MAR ratio is a measure of the average annual return of a fund divided by its worst drawdown. So let's take the S&P. 
you have an average annual return, just to make the math easy, because I'm not good at doing math on the fly of 10% with a 50% drawdown. That's a MAR of 0.2. That is an extremely, and if you wouldn't have a hedge fund if you had a MAR ratio that low. It is psychologically one of the hardest investments to make. So there you have two choices now. It's really about simplifying this game. You either get hit to volatility or you eschew, you leave, you stiff arm, you highs me in the asset class. And you need to figure out which of those two it is because there's really no way to dampen volatility in general. There is on the margin and one of you should ask me how to do that. But I think not a lot of people ask themselves, is this an asset class that I can even participate in? I think they just say, oh, I have some liquidity. Let me throw it to the market. If someone told you you're only going to make 10% a year and lose half your money every decade, you probably wouldn't do that. Yeah, but I think you can dampen volatility by just making wise choices with your investments. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying there could be a different way of looking at this too. So take, for example, that investment, that ARK Innovation ETF that invests in all the innovative tech stocks and everything. I'm not going to look at all 10. If you were to look at the top 10 holdings of that ETF, and look at how far each one of those top 10 holdings is trading below their all-time high, each individual security. Tesla is trading 24% lower than its all-time high. Roku is trading 28% lower than its all-time high. Coinbase, down 40% from its all-time high. Zoom, down 43%. Twillow down 25%, Spotify down 44%. So if you are increasing your concentration to volatile sectors, you are self-selecting into something that is creating more volatility than maybe you need. So I think you can avoid volatility if you're smart. By the way, I'm not recommending that ETF in any way, shape, or form. That is not only a compliance statement, it is a Dave Armstrong freaking reality comment. There's a lot there. There's a lot of insight there. I do think that you can avoid some volatility. And I think there's actually a very logical few steps investors can make. And I think we should talk about them. The first unequivocally is have a plan. Once you can put, I think what you're saying about your example of Roku, Coinbase, Tesla is context. What you just offered the listeners and what you offered us was you could put this in the appropriate context. So if you're able to frame your investment strategy in the right context, if it's inside of a plan, wow, step one, you've just taken a step that most people don't take. Now you have aligned interest, the stakeholders are, are heading in the same direction, et cetera, et cetera, right? The second, everyone knows what the industry does is asset allocation. And I think we have a cool riff on that, which we could talk about in a minute. And then the third is what we're, the nature of this podcast is have the right mindset. Actually, I think the biggest value add of a good advisor and of monument wealth is to not let our clients sell or panic when it's time. Yeah. Can I throw a quick quote in there that has nothing to do with volatility from the book though? This is a good one. It's another one of my favorite ones. Really early on in the book, he says, a genius who loses control of their emotions can be a financial disaster. The opposite is also true. Ordinary folks with no financial education can be wealthy if they have a handful of behavioral skills that have nothing to do with the formal measures of intelligence. Pretty good one. I mean, another mic drop, right? I mean, boom. When Dave and I are both speechless, you know there's something dense there. <laughs> when I read that, I, <laughs> I said to myself, indexing is so wonderful in so many ways and so detrimental. 
when your success is measured by some arbitrary number and you're not also accounting for, like we said, the volatility, the drawdown, et cetera, you're not incorporating your own psychology into how you invest, you're going to fail. It's why so many people puke when the index goes down. It's because they didn't align their worldview with their plan, with their investment strategy, right? It's this coalescence of all of these things together that make a successful investor. I have a lot of thoughts on indexing. I'm sure we'll we'll come back to it. But at the end of the day, the index, everyone says the best investment is to just index and walk away. Sure, on paper. And Morgan Housel has a quote about this too, is that financial engineers supposed to put put things in a spreadsheet, do it, and then walk away. Well, that's not the world we live in. We live in a world where when the market goes down 10%, you worry about facing your family or funding college or retirement. So it's unequivocally that you, investors spend as much time, if not more time, on the behavioral aspects than it is on the nuts and bolts. So, Ro, tell me your favorite quote. What was the one that hit you the hardest when you read this book? I'll preface it as to why it was my favorite, because I think the role of an investor is different than the role of an advisor. And I think that's an important distinction to think about in our day jobs an investor's job is first to actually get a mandate because most people say beat the S&P. Well, no, you can design a portfolio to either beat on the way up, but you'll likely lose more on the way down, or you can design a portfolio to get a B on the way up and an A on the way down. When clients come to us for both, we push the back pretty hard and say, look, if you chase two frogs, you'll catch neither. So the first thing an investor has to do is get clear on what the outcome is. An advisor's role, I think, is to get people to stop comparing themselves to some idealistic, normative, wealth maximization idea that's out there. An advisor's role is to, and here's my favorite quote, is to teach our clients to do the following. And here's the quote from Morgan Housel. The hardest financial skill to master is to get the goalposts to stop moving. But it's one of the most important. If expectations rise faster than results, there is no logic in putting in more because you will feel the same. Ambition cannot rise faster than satisfaction. Everybody listening to this podcast right now should hit that little 30-second rewind circle button on their podcast app and listen to that again. If the goalpost for you and you've successfully exited a business or you're working with Monument and you've made it to retirement, if you keep moving the goalpost, if you spend more or try to eke out an extra percent of return from your portfolio instead of managing the greatest arbitrage opportunity, which is humility... Managing our own humility is the single greatest arbitrage opportunity there is for a client, for an investor, for a person. If you're focused on that external victory, you're an unhappy client. Sorry, some of our clients are hearing this, but at the end of the day, that's the reason people succeed or fail. Let's make this real now and take it out of the book's context. I think only until a few months ago, Buffett went on his 14th, I know it was 13, 13 consecutive years of underperforming the S&P. He's not freaking out, <laughs> right? He's not, he's not changing his investment strategy. He's not tacking between growth and, and so suddenly buying growth stocks. He's not changing because he has the right psychological makeup. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot tie your psychological well-being to the S&P 500. You will lose and the S&P 500 will win every time. Well, not only that, but it kind of goes back to that example I was using with ARC. Like there's not a dissimilar problem with the S&P 500 when five of the 500 stocks are driving 20% of the market cap or whatever. I'm slaughtering that statistic a little bit, but it's telling. If you're not willing to be overweight, those five huge stocks, the S&P 500 isn't a good benchmark. It's the benchmark that the news uses. It's the litmus test. It's the index that everybody used when they say, how did the market do today? 
right? It's either the Dow, which is 30 stocks, even worse than the S&P 500 as an indicator, or they say the S&P did this. So, you know, together, it's just sort of a litmus test. I agree with you. It is a horrible benchmark to be using to benchmark your performance. I mean, Jessica, you do this in planning all the time, right? How many clients do we have that we use the S&P 500 as the benchmark for their wealth success? I want to push back on that a little because it's a useful benchmark to see how the economy is doing, to see if you had an aggregate measure of stocks. I think what's more interesting is if you can become comfortable with a range of outcomes as an investor, plus or minus the S&P a certain percentage, but still be have a high probability, if not certainty, of reaching your goal, slam dunk. And so from a benchmark perspective, let's talk about that. We do have some clients who come to us and task us with that, and we have a strategy. I'm going to talk a little bit asset management talk here because that's my day job. I'm not as smart as, as Dave and Jessica, but we call it tactical ETF. Let's go over some of the statistics for our tactical ETF strategy. One, in order to, to beat, which historically we don't have enough data to say it does or doesn't, it's shown a good probability of doing so. It one stays fully invested at all times. So now we're negating the cash comment we already made. It's hard to stick with this strategy. Secondly, it trades a little bit more often because we use momentum. And third, here's the rub. Here's the hardest part about that strategy. It has done an outstanding job against the S&P and the Acqui. On the way up, it has lost more on the way down. And we see this with, with professional money managers. There are some who are great at capturing upside and some who are great at managing downside. If your goal is to beat the S&P, you have to take more risk than the S&P. In doing so, you have to be willing to take more drawdown. That is a strategy we are happy to execute on behalf of a client, knowing that what they think is the worst case scenario, magnify it, because that's the cost. That's the volatility fee, to your quote, Dave, about Disney World. That's the volatility fee. It can be done, and it can be done in a high probability fashion. It just comes at a, a cost that very few people are actually willing to take. Yeah, and I think just back to the quote that you had, Bro, about you have to get the goalposts to stop moving. It's like, do you even need that? And that's where it all connects in my mind to planning. It's like looking at, okay, you have worked an incredible career. You've built and sold a wonderful business. It's like, do you even really need to take on that extra risk? Or are you doing it just for the sake of having more and saying you have more? In my mind, that's not really the point of wealth is to have more. It's to be able to do the things that you want to do with it. And if your plan says you only need to take on this much risk, then why are you taking on more? That's where I'm going to empathize with the client. It's an insightful point, Jessica, because, and Morgan Housel has a chapter on this, getting wealthy is different than staying wealthy. You nailed it, Jessica. The clients who have built successful businesses or have diligently saved their whole life to get to retirement, they were seeking more. That's what motivated them, this idea of freedom. And to be a successful entrepreneur, it's more. It's to enhance, to grow at all times. And then we ask our clients, and our clients don't even realize when they switch from being an entrepreneur or an employee to a, an investor slash retiree, we're asking them to completely shift the values that they had to get there. It takes a specific type of person to execute on the, on the getting wealthy part, take concentrated risks bank on yourself only, buck the traditional views of things. And then it takes a very different person to survive in markets. That person has to be short-term paranoid, long-term optimistic. That person has to have the uncomfortable asset of cash staring them in the face in a bull market. That person has to be willing to have a meeting with Dave and Jessica and Roe where their portfolio is broadly diversified 
And if they're in 10 investments, four will be underperforming. Four will be in line and two will be ahead. We're always going to say sorry to a well-diversified client. Being diversified means apologizing a lot. <laughs> Dave, thoughts on getting wealthy versus staying wealthy? I know you have some, some ideas here. Well, everybody likes the idea of more. Hey, how much more money do you want to make in your paycheck? More. How much more money do you want your portfolio to be worth? More. And I get that. That's, that's, a, that's a human emotion. I have it too. But I think at some point you have to look at it and say, what is a responsible way to get more? What is the responsible thing to do here? And it goes back to the volatility and everything else, which is have a plan, look at this and say to yourself, do I have the ability to withstand volatility because I have a good cash position and I won't be forced to sell things when they go down? And do I have a responsible investment plan because I'm worried about eliminating the sequence of risks and the market's at an all-time high and I'm 67 years old and think about retiring the next 12 to 18 months? Jeez, let's make sure your money is 100% in the equity market that you're relying on to retire for the rest of your life so you're removing the sequence of risk. Like, There are some really easy, basic things that everyone can do either by themselves or in conjunction with a financial advisor, because it goes back to the doctor thing. I don't need my doctor to tell me to exercise, don't smoke cigars, whatever it is. I know all that stuff. I just have to do it. The doctor isn't going to solve my fork to mouth problem. So just like a financial advisor isn't going to stop somebody from overspending beyond their, their means and dwindling their portfolio down or taking too much risk if they're managing their own money. But that getting wealthy versus staying wealthy are two different things that are very closely connected with each other. And they, they really boil down to more about your emotional behavior than it does about picking the ARC Innovation ETF or something like that. So let's go one step further. When you use the phrase, have a plan to get more, I started writing furiously because we have a strategy, a, a plan to get more for our clients. And it's very counterintuitive. And it's going to sound like I'm telling you that two plus two is a banana, but hear me out for a second, right? Well, you're lucky I've heard this before, so I'm not going to jump in and like argue with you on it. So Wait, what do you think I'm going to say? What's the plan to have more? <laughs> You go for it, man. Well, I was talking from an investment standpoint. I, I know the plan from the way Jessica uses the word is much more calibrated and sophisticated than the way I'm going to use the word, but have a plan to get more. Well, here's the secret. The plan to get more is actually, I'll say it first in finance terms, then I'll say it in English, is cut off the left tail, right? In English, is minimize drawdowns. Getting more is about hitting a new high in your equity curve, in your portfolio value as often as possible. So in our case, we utilize a strategy, and maybe this is a topic for another podcast, but we use a strategy called flexible asset allocation. And what we do there is it's designed to not quite at the first sign, but at the second sign of trouble in the market, we have a sell discipline underneath an ETF because every 50% decline in the market, every 40% decline in the market, every 30% decline market started as a 10% decline. And so the way to get more, once you've made it, now, because there's a big distinction, I think, between how to create wealth and how to stay wealthy. Staying wealthy is staying invested, don't get me wrong, but actively cutting off left tails, actively cutting off losses. Getting wealthy is accepting that volatility and accepting those losses. So getting wealthy, buy and hold the S&P, hold your nose, take your Dramamine, do what you got to do. Staying wealthy is actively engaging in a strategy that's first anchored in a plan, and then I think cutting off the left tail to the extent possible. And again, we do that with FAA. So I think there are strategies out there to minimize volatility and keep you in the game. We don't want to minimize volatility and get you out of the game. That's important. 
Yeah, Ro, let's get you and Aaron Hay, who's our portfolio manager at Monument. Let's get you back and, and we're going to talk about this more. But I'd love to wrap up by sharing my favorite quote. So as a financial planner, obviously, I gravitated to his quotes about planning. And, and the one that really resonated with me was this. A plan is only useful if it can survive reality. And a future filled with unknowns is everyone's reality. I love that quote. I spend so much time helping our clients basically develop these very robust plans that I'm using sophisticated modeling in order to try to project out what their reality may look like in a decade, two decades, three decades, four decades even. And while I think there's a lot of use in that, because it helps you make confident choices today based on what you know today without being able to really actually predict the future, which no one can do. So while I love doing that type of planning, I also love leaning into our clients and and saying, hey, you may not even know what you want to do next year, let alone 10 years from now. I love that aspect about planning is that I'm trying to plan for those unknowns. And and I learned something later in the book, Housel talks about this thing in psychology called the end of history illusion. And this is what psychologists call a tendency for people to be keenly aware of how much they've changed in the past, but to radically underestimate how much their desires, their goals, even them themselves are going to change in the future. He also has this other line that I love that it's like, you're not a spreadsheet, you're a person. So that's what I love about planning is that you're trying to take all these inputs and you're you're trying to do your best to project what may happen in the future. But you have to accept that element of like, things are going to change. Your needs and your desires are even going to change. What you think today to be true is is what you're going to plan on. You have to accept that element of like, this plan may not go to plan. And so that's why I love that quote. It totally resonated with me because that element of human behavior, that's what I personally love about being a planner. It's not about the numbers. It's about the people. You know, Mike Tyson had a very similar quote. Do you know it? <laughs> no, I don't. Everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face or something. Oh, like yeah, that, that yeah. one. <laughs> <laughs> It's very insightful what you said, Jessica, because if the only certainty is uncertainty, right? If the only constant is change, what are we to do? We don't throw our hands up and not try. So what do we do? How do we handle it as investors, as advisors? We just play the probabilities. The beating heart of Monument Wealth, the core identity of who we are as a shop, is that we don't let hunch and innuendo drive us. Whether it's our investment process, which is almost entirely systematic, or our planning process, which is highly quantitative, Monte Carlo-based, stress-tested, conservative. The beating heart of what we do is to say, because we don't know for sure, we check our hubris at the door, we just play probabilities over and over and over again. We're card counters. We've seen the movie Moneyball. That's what we do. We say, we don't know what's going to happen this month, but at this savings rate, these historical rates of return, coupled with this sell discipline in your case, or coupled with this buy discipline in your case, we can do something very interesting. I think that's what's so so unique about Monument as well as, yeah, it's all about the people and it's all about counting cards. We're, we're unique in that sense. That's our seminal core identity as a firm. Yeah. To me, that's why a plan is not something that's like a one and done situation. Plan to me means we're going to do the work and we're going to develop this thing and make sure it is as comprehensive and as accurate and based in fact as we know to be today. But next year, we're going to tweak it. The year after that, we're going to keep refining it. The year after that, we're going to say, yep, this is still what we want. And the year after that, we're going to almost blow it up and be like, I'm really actually thinking about retiring early. And what does that look like? This is a living document in my mind. I just think that's just so fun about planning. I sound like such a nerd now, but it's just why I love it. 
But you've said this before, Jessica, too, which is there's a difference between having a plan and doing planning. And we don't see the usefulness in giving somebody a plan. We see usefulness in constantly planning with people. There's a huge difference because one infers that it's a static implement the plan. And the other one infers that you start out with a plan and then you're constantly working on it, which is what you just said, and tweaking it. That's the most important thing because you can't just set it and forget it. I think that's a perfect way to wrap up. I got one more way to wrap up real quick. Okay. Did you know Morgan Housel actually lives here in Alexandria, Virginia? I did not. No, I didn't. Yeah. He was right in Delray. Well. <laughs> yeah. And he has not come to see the coolest wealth management firm in the whole world. The whole world. <laughs> it's, it's an award that we have. It's somewhere. I think it's the Dave Armstrong will given, I think, Dave Armstrong gives it out. And that has a lot of gravitas to it. So, Morgan, if you hear this, we're big fans. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Again, the book is The Psychology of Money, Timeless Lessons on Wealth, Greed, and Happiness. So, thanks so much, Ro, for joining us to talk about this. As always, reach out to us at Monument if you have any questions or want to chat more about this. You can follow us on social. We're on Instagram, LinkedIn. And, you know, as Dave always likes to say, like and subscribe. We'll see you back here soon. And if this podcast created any questions, get it to us somehow, either on email or over Instagram or whatever, and we'll answer them on the next podcast. Great. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you on the next episode.